couldn't think of a better name for this one. I might go with something like a big butt. Well, that's, that's it's it's a subtle form of humour. My recommendation would be absolutely bloody not. Welcome, listeners of Illusion to Temporal Discussion, the episode-by-episode Nightmare Retrospective podcast. I'm Martin Harder, and it is excellent good fortune that you are listening to our podcast. If you had, for instance, been listening to Cheap Show, then I would have been constrained to destroy you. God, that's aggressive. Um, (laughs) And and I'm Martin Odoni, and I'm not from Geordie Land Champion, but I am very difficult to understand. Today we're looking at Series 4, Episode 3, which was originally broadcast on September the 21st, 1990. The number one film was Another 48 Hours, starring Eddie Murphy, Nick Nolte and Brian James. It was directed by Walter Hill, and my wife tells me it's all right. You don't know what you do to me! It's been seven long years. Look, I got 48 hours to bring this guy in. I'm history. You want me to go out with you for another 48 hours? Now look, Reggie, this time I promise you it's gonna be different. But Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte are back. Let me tell you something. I ain't working for you. I don't like you and I don't trust you. Welcome back, Red. And they're making up for lost time. You got the same car, same clothes. That's the way I like it. I get attached to things, Reggie. Another 48 hours. Oh, you're in trouble with the law this time. Good. Murphy, Nick Nolte. I'm driving. I was wanting a chauffeur, Reggie. Another 48 hours. Roxanne, you don't have to put on the red light. I've never actually seen another 48 hours. I did see 48 hours about a year or so ago. I didn't like it very much. It was very much a sort of generic cop double act film with Eddie Murphy being the caricature, no discipline, smart ass. Even at the time, it must have screamed, been done before, but never seen the sequel. Given this was only 1990, I can't imagine the formula would have been deviated from very much. More but bigger. Yeah, a bigger role perhaps for Eddie Murphy, but still doing the same thing, being a wise ass and committing petty crimes while pretending to help the cops. In the music charts, Steve Miller Band held on to the number one spot for a further week. We said about as much as we can say about the song in the last episode so for now i'll just point out that if you say steve miller band fast it sounds like the name of a politician i imagine this ed sings better though temporal discussion. temporal discussion bringing you the latest news from 1990 in the news today nothing interesting happened in the news today <laughs> can find a thing it sounds like a joke it sounds like i'm gonna say oh but there was this major event that happened but no i couldn't find anything interesting that happened in the news this day oh well surely the fact that the season four of nightmare continued has to be considered huge news and now time turns the recording light burns the timeout is gone the podcast is on
Greetings. Treyguard at your service. My dungeon at your disposal. Well, actually, we tend to do the disposing around here. Don't we, Pickle? Yes, well, let's check the current dispositions. Pickle, as I don't read the runes, perhaps you do the honours. This quest is for the cup that heals. Team in quest, why, James, Rachel and Craig and, oh, of course, their dungeoneer, Helen McEnough. They're from that which you call Geordie Land Champion. At least I find them hard to understand. Time in quest, 42 minutes. Level attained, level two. Promising. Really very promising. Now let's see if that promise can be fulfilled. Time out is gone. The quest is on. The introductions are much shorter now that the ditties have been scrapped. That's the plus side. The downside is that Pickle reading from the Book of Quests lacks a certain atmosphere. Pickle informs us that the current quest is for the cup that heals. The team consists of advisors James, Rachel and Craig and Dungeoneer Helen. They all hail from Sunderland, or John D. Land Champion, as Pickle says. They have reached level two and the time in the quest so far is listed as 42 minutes, although the accuracy of this is debatable. They are currently carrying no clue objects and have no magic. I'm not sure that it's right to say that they're from Geordie Land Champion. Um, surely Sunderland is Mackham Land. Geordie Land is actually Newcastle. Have I misunderstood that was? We need to ask Keith McDonald about this. He's one of the Nightmare users on the forum. He comes from Sunderland. He can set us straight on this. We rejoin the quest during a passive pass segment in which the Ice Shield is leading Helen down a staircase into level three. Now listen, team. That which we call level three of the greater dungeon must lie somewhere below this fortress. And there must be some way down to it. If only you can find it. The award for most useless piece of information of the episode goes to Treyguard here as he imparts it as Helen is already descending the steps. I have always despised that line from Treyguard. The way down to level three is literally right in front of them. And as the Ice Shield is engaged, they don't even have to give Helen particular directions to use it. At this point, the Tower of Time is really underwhelming, isn't it? Mm. There isn't a single puzzle or opponent anywhere until you get into level three, whereupon you've effectively left the tower anyway. You're not actually in the tower, you're underneath the tower when you get there. You really do feel that the Tower of Time was a missed opportunity. There's nothing there. You just go through a door and suddenly you're at a staircase you go down the staircase you're in level three and you've left the tower behind you where am i right you're in a room a circular room with a table in the middle of it and there's a chair next to the table on the table there are a roast chicken and a metal bracelet as helen approaches the table however a skull haunting appears helen matsaps the chicken then puts the bracelet on trade reminds the team of their pact with hordris and they instruct Helen to call him. Call now, Malifact, three times. Malifact, Malifact, Malifact. Begone, vile shade and essay. One does so despise those lingering traces of violent death. It's just referred to as the circular chamber, this place, by most fans. Yeah. Because what else is there to it? That really is the only feature of any great... No, it's boring enough in isolation, and the constant use of it throughout season four really drums it home. 
Yeah, several times in the same episode, usually. In the same quest. To be fair, they do come up with some interesting mods for it as they go along. Yeah. But, um, yeah, this, it is ridiculously overused. I can't believe they went to that castle and they just couldn't find anything else <laughs> at all, whatever castle it was. It's actually the upper hall at Orford Castle in Suffolk. Is it? Right, okay. After casting the haunting away, Hordris turns his attention to Helen. He's pleased to see that she has kept her side of the bargain. Can I just intervene there, actually? There does seem to be a moral issue developing with Helen here. You remember back in the previous level, she demanded a reward for freeing Merlin, and now she hesitates over fulfilling her side of the bargain with orders. Should I give him this? We seem to have discovered the first ever anti-hero dungeon here. She's really in it for herself. She's not in it for truth and justice at all. She's there for her truth and her justice. Yeah, exactly. The bracelet, if you please. To hand it over to him. Yes. I thank you. And now one shall keep one's own side of the agreement. We must be brief, however, for something rather powerful is about this place and discretion demands one's absence. So when Helen hands over the bracelet, Hordris gifts her two spells. The first he claims is very powerful and is called Transformation. The second is a more humble spell by the name of But. Sensing another power at their location, Hordris then leaves. The team then guide Helen to do the same. I've just got this image in my head when casting the transformation spell of um, Helen folding her arms back into her sides and allowing <laughs> she turns into an articulated lorry and yeah. smashes her way through level three. Optimus <laughs> Prime would have found engineering an absolute doddle. Where am I? I'm telling you, on a, you're on a ridge, like a, a wall, you're on top of a wall, and each side of you there's um, there's a, a drop, a shed drop down, as far as we can see, so be careful where you're walking. Have a care, team. Something most unpleasant is about to make its presence felt. Helen has emerged inside a cavern on an unstable-looking stone bridge. We're seen directly side-on, like an old 2D platform game. The bridge spans across three screens, similar to the ledge crossing in the previous series. The cavern itself is an eerie blue with light emanating from a waterfall in the background. As mentioned in the previous episode, I do love this scene and I just wish there was more like it in season four. It is so much more in keeping with previous seasons and it does feel very enchanted in its own right. They've done experimentation with the technology here to increase their options. There's a clever overlay effect here with the waterfall in the far distance. The exit from the previous chamber is then pasted over that. You've got the bridge and a separate element there and paste it onto the edge of that and put together it gives a proper 3D feel to the scene real sense of grandeur and scale that's been achieved there before Helen can make a move welcome my foolish one thrice time the welcome the ghostly visage of Mogdred appears menacingly in the background he threatens Helen by telling her that there will be no interference and she has come far enough Unless she pledges allegiance to him, he will allow her to progress no further. So basically, it's just a rerun of those scenes in season two when Mark, Stewart and Jason were presented with the same dilemma. Pretty obvious it seems by now that they should say no, though. His appearance here is quite menacing. Oh, it is, yeah. He's made to look big again, which helps. Um, I think he was usually at his most interesting when he appeared as a gigantic image rather than just a human-sized human. The echo that they've added is slightly different from the ones in previous seasons, though, to emphasise the fact that there's a gigantic cavern that they're in. And that, again, adds to the slightly intimidating feel. Do you so pledge? No. No. So, you defy me. 
You are too proud. You ride too high. Which means you're ready for a fall. <laughs> shall, we do, shall we just walk on? Yeah. Right. Walk forward. Nothing appears to happen at first, but as Helen reaches the edge of the first section, the bridge begins to crumble. The second section presents a little more urgency as the large brick that formed the bridge fall away. Despite being told this and being asked to move quickly, Helen continues to take a leisurely stroll across the ominous overpass and makes it to the other side. For the standards of the time, I mean, today, yes, it looks extremely cartoony. The, the bridge is so obviously just a drawing, or, or, or a CGI drawing, anyway. But for the standards of the time, this sequence is visually very impressive. Yeah. Maybe for adding the fact they could throw in a haunting to speed up Helen's uh, rather casual jaunt through the park. But yeah, this is a properly animated bit of CGI, and it does have an air of real threat to it. It really is a step forward, this one. This is why I think this is probably the best location that Season 4 ever gave us, with the possible exception of the Corridor of Blades. But that's for very different reasons. This is a bit of old-school nightmare done in an upgraded way, and I think very much enhanced by it. I tell you, in a circular room, at, at the top of the room, there's a um, like a window with two windows. There's an arch with two windows, with a step up to the windows. And you, at your left, there's a, um, a chair. Helen has arrived in a room that seems very familiar. It's the same circular room used for the clue room a few minutes ago. The backdrop itself is used for many rooms in level three. And as we stated before, it's a photograph of the upper hall at Orford Castle in Suffolk. This is slightly modified in a very half-hearted attempt to convince us that it's a different place. Yeah. Because they've got this second window alcove on the left wall. But you can tell very obviously that it's, it's the same room. What I think they've done is they've taken photographs from opposite ends of the room and then pasted them together. So it's actually, it's one window alcove, but you're seeing it from opposite angles at the same time. I don't necessarily have a problem with using the same room or a similar variation of the same room in the same quest but don't throw them in so close together i can't i think it's i'm not sure what it is ah so we meet at last helen there is no escape this time yes it is modred in person i have come to regard your progress through my realm as something of a personal insult so I shall now put an end to it in person. The opposing figure of Mogdred, complete in a rather lovely dress, towers over Helen. He calls forth a magical sword to slay the Dungeoneer where she stands. In an attempt to save her, the team resorts to magic. Prepare to receive the doom T-R-A To slow Too long, team. Your magic was too long. What you needed here was the shorter spell. Tried to cast transformation, should have given, but a try. Dumb way to die. This has got to be the single most contradictory scene for Mugdred because in many ways he actually does the kill himself here. That makes him look really badass. It's actually something in many ways he's been waiting three or four years for. The moment Mugdred really proves he really is as dangerous as he keeps bluffing himself to be. So he looks really badass for the first time ever rather than just bluffing. But at the same time, 
He's wearing a dress. He is wearing a gown that Julia Roberts could have been wearing in Pretty Woman. Now, I have no issue with cross-dressers. Good luck to them. But if you want your bad guy to look like a bad guy, look like a really super powerful bad guy, you don't put him in a dress. It's supposed to be a robe, isn't it, really? Yes, but it's a dress. It's supposed to be a robe, but it's a dress. <laughs> All right. That's a harp. And that's a dress. Rob. I am a firm believer of the idea that clothes are unisex. Yeah, that's fine. But he does look silly. Just to reiterate, a few weeks ago, we trashed and rightly for her attitude to trans rights. Uh, we are total supporters of trans rights, but there are just some things you, if you want to have the right dramatic effect on a TV programme, you just don't do. And this is it. It's actually a very powerful scene, actually getting Mogdred to, in person, kill off the Dungeoneer at a stroke like that. It makes him suddenly seem a lot more powerful than he has done at any previous stage. They weren't a bad side of this team, I should say. They're, they were a bit stiff. Um, and, and as I say, um, certain of them were much more assertive than others. I'm not sure they deserve to get to level three. No, I was, was going to say, you feel in earlier seasons they wouldn't have reached the end of level two. It's often argued that Nightmare became less difficult the further along you got, and I, I do think there is an element of truth in that, and that might be a symptom of it. I don't think this team in season three would have stood a chance. I think they would have struggled to get far beyond Merlin's throne room. Season four, I think, can be charitably described as the most experimental series. Well, apart from season one itself, obviously. Well, yeah. I would say, on the other hand, in fairness to them, that this was a somewhat unfair death scene because there was no clue whatever which was the best spell to use in the confrontation with Mogdred. And you don't really get enough time to realise how long you're going to get to cast the spell. In most of these situations, we've discussed before, the rocking back and forth non-player character who's standing there poised to attack but won't until you take it your turn. That doesn't apply in this situation and there was nothing to indicate why it should be any different. I somewhat disagree. When you've got one spell you're told is very powerful and one spell that you're told is very humble i think it's the law of nightmare i think that if anything makes it even unkinder because if you say one's most powerful and you're dealing with the big bad of the quest logic would scream out to you use the transform spell you must but again it's what i refer to as the law of nightmares the most unusual or most useless seeming item is probably the one you need well spoiler alert you then go to the next team that got this far into level three and it very much went the other way so again it does seem unfair it seems unfair comparing this team to dickens team shall i say because it was much more straightforward and there wasn't this um sleight of hand in there over which spell to cast when uh, in their case although i take what you're saying i would be interested to know exactly what the butt spell was going to do but they didn't cast it and we get a direct kill for mugdred and uh yeah you know, it gives him his balls back so to speak so let's see if this one works spell casting d i s m i s s there goodbye craig rachel helen and james you'll find the path behind you and you won't need to use the eye shield this time Down to the grass by the castle Cause we died when our quest proved too much hassle Oh, won't you The lovely hand-painted image used for the path home in previous series has been replaced with a blue-tinged photograph of some castle ruins. But other than that, the scene goes along as it had many times before. The team holding their scrolls wave goodbye before walking away. Do we know what castle this is? Um, I think it's... 
uh, Pembroke. It's the birthplace of Edward II. Helen and co. leave, and we get this really bizarre conversation between Traegard and Pickle, uh, where Traegard spouts platitudes about putting on a brave face. Pickle sounds really upset and downcast about the team losing. And then Traegard, in a moment reminiscent of his earlier self, says, Enough of this, the game goes on, and there's nothing like a spot of sudden death to spice up the proceedings. And Pickle smiles devilishly. Inconsistent characterization is a problem a lot of the time in Nightmare. Inconsistent characterization in the same conversation. That's taken it a bit far, isn't it? Now, who's next? Is anyone at the door? Ah, I see there is. Cut to the magic mirror, which shows the most glamorous-looking contestant we've seen on the show for quite some time. But looks can be deceiving, so let's see how this one turns out. Alistair Gill announces himself, and after assuring Traegar that he is quite human, he looks depressed enough to be a human, <laughs> he summons his advisors, Harry Smith, Martin Ward, and James Smith, who, along with Alistair, all hail from Woodbridge, which I think is in Essex. Thank heavens! Alistair was the dungeoneer and not an advisor. All the time, he just looked so utterly bored he'd have made the whole thing unwatchable if we'd had to see that all the time it's not a bad dungeoneer that's the strange thing about it he's not a bad dungeoneer he's actually quite assertive but he just looks so bored he has what my wife refers to as resting bitch face i just call it resting sleep face to be fair he doesn't sound like it at all when he's actually out in the quest he's quite urgent after checking the knapsack it's totally bananaless trailer briefly explains the rules before putting the helmet on alistair's head and sending him on his way yeah there's something painfully homoerotic about the way uh, Pickle is gripping the banana as he takes it out of the helmet where we've been holding it. And bananas <laughs> in helmets. I mean, what... Who does Tim Child think he's trying to fool? I didn't actually notice him take it out. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, didn't like... know about that. Oh, didn't you? Okay. <laughs> no. No, um, he's, he had it, he was holding it <laughs> under the helmet, um, hands over the helmet, then realises the banana is in his hand and go, like, hides it behind <laughs> his back. Well, Trey Guy gives him a very, very black look. I didn't notice that at all. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I bet Jake could have told you all about that and actually got you the measurements for the banana and uh, the exact <laughs> angle that he was holding the <laughs> banana at. For me, Pickle is holding his banana and he's just given out some helmet. That's going to be a cut out, isn't it? Oh, no, I want this on record. Are you ready, Alistair? Yes. Ten, then. Place your foot upon the path and step... Boldly forward. Where am I? Right, Alistair, you're um, on a pole that's leading out into a ravine. There are three passageways. In the middle is a kind of circle disc, a disc that's just spinning round. We know this place, Master. It's the place of choice. Quite so, Pickle. Now listen, Jean, by following the path with your predecessors, we have already discovered there are pronounced changes in this phase of the dungeon. Be warned, very little is as it was before. The quest you choose here will select a path for you to follow. So choose now. The quest to redeem the shield of justice or to find the sword of freedom. Well, hey, did you near with the helmet on your head? But you go for the cup of the crown instead of the sword of the shield, because there's nothing in between. Oh, hey, that you're a don't be alive. But what fuss will kick cause you harm? If you slip by the disc, you'll end up in the ravine. At the place of choice. At the place of choice. The place 
place of choice That place of choice The team resolved to aim for the shield Alistair nearly comes a cropper trying to mount the disc But that's nothing compared to what happens when he attempts to dismount Right, when we say go, we'd like you to step upon the disc, okay? Right, go Careful. Turn around, Alistair. Not careful. 180 degrees. Right. When we say go, you're going to try and you're going to step off onto the ledge, okay? Step off onto the ledge. Ready. Get him right to the edge. Go. Good. Oh. Bit of an urban myth about season four was that one team died in the very first room. The first ever nightmare website was set up by a guy from the UK who'd moved to America and only got to see the first two seasons. But he was a huge fan of Nightmare. Good taste. Someone left a comment on the guest book on his page stating that the shortest quest in history lasted, I think they said, a mere 16 seconds because someone fell off the wheel. Some fans, without any source to the contrary at the time, for a year or two actually did start believing it. Now, the 16 second thing is clearly a nonsense anyway. He wouldn't even got onto the wheel by that point, let alone try to step off it again. But this appears to be where it comes from because he does sort of fall off the plank as he leaves the spin dizzy. And he very definitely hits the floor of the studio. Yeah, you can hear his footstep landing on the reel. It does look like it's a bit painful, though, because he seems to be limping as he leaves along the uh, the pathway. Mm. I imagine it's like, have you ever like gone down the stairs and then misremembered how many stairs there oh, are? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And then you hit the last step like really hard because of it. Yes, that does jar your knee and also sometimes your thigh joint as well. Looking at the place of choice, at least visually, it looks surprisingly difficult for the first puzzle of the game. Yeah, it's actually a lot more difficult than some of the puzzles in level three. Yeah, and I would be shocked if they hadn't had to refilm it because people had fallen off. I've never heard any examples of that, but I would not be surprised at all if that turned out to be the case. Anyway, they do actually get out of the place of choice. Yeah. They've chosen the opposite cliff from the... uh, the previous team and yet they wind up in exactly the same place stop where am i well alistair it looks like you're on just about to enter a castle there's a raised drawbridge in front of you there's a face just appeared on the drawbridge a what a A face. face this is a weeping door she rejoices in the name of Doris, although rejoice hardly seems appropriate. A truth will open her, and that's the only key that works. Oh, what a day. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Oh, how dreadful. It's a human. Now I suppose you want me to open, and of course I can't. So anyway, they come face to face with Doris in the courtyard again. Alistair is probably the loudest dungeoneer we've ever had in the show. But like, it's, it like screams, Where am I? Yeah, it does a bit, doesn't it? He's probably the loudest so far. I will never yield to anybody who suggests that anybody other than Team Free in Season 8 is the loudest everybody. Oh, Gideon. Oh, God! They sounded like they were making love to the quest for the amount of times they were shouting, Oh, God! But we'll come to them in a couple of years. So as before, a face appears on the drawbridge. The Evermorrow's Doris explains that she can't open in exactly the same words she used. Last time. Oh, please, Master. Please let me at least tell them the calling. They're never going to work it out for themselves. Oh, very well, Pickle, but no more direct assistance. We have rules here, and if you can't obey, I'll see you're sent elsewhere. Ah, I've been there. 
elsewhere. <laughs> Can't say I liked it. Listen, team, calling here is simple enough. Alistair must merely call out true and false, false and true. Mm -hmm. Open up, let us through. Alistair, here, say true and false, false and true. Open up and let us through. Okay. True and false, false and true. Open up and let us through. Oh dear, oh dear, I hear, I hear. This is already the point where I began to get a sinking feeling back in 1990 that every quest was going to be too similar to the first one. Yeah. I'm afraid I was more or less right. The questions are as follows. A willow the wisp is an insect. True or false? And as we all know, it's false. Of course it's false. It's a TV show with Kenneth Williams doing all the voices. Insert the theme from Willow the Wisp there. <laughs> da, 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 da. It's a really popular club anthem these days. Is it? Yeah, it's had a joke, but they often play it between the real track in clubs in Manchester. The depth of the deepest ocean is greater than the height of the highest mountain. True or false? And that's true. It is true. It's very true. It's not even close. Final riddle. This is silly. Dawn stones are found on the banks of Galway Bay. True or false? Of course it's bloody false. <laughs> oh, oh dear, oh dear. This is terrible. Truth will out. Ah, oh, yes. Truth will out, and so will you. <laughs> well done, team. You're on your way. Really? The way ahead, at least, is open, but avoid overconfidence, team. Everything that's happened so far has been exactly the same as was on the first quest. So let's see if anybody can guess which room the Dungeoneers wind up in next. Where am I? Alistair, yeah. you're in a room. There's a large fireplace directly ahead of you and a table in the room. There's a small stand with a shield on it and there's a lady dressed in black walking from side to side across the room. Mm, caution, team, there's a power here, and I'm not at all sure that it's pleasant. Oh, it's that strange office study type room with the eye shield in it again. Nobody explains how the eye shield got back there, but it's there and it's back on its podium. Maybe it's a sort of like respawning thing from a computer game. But anyway, Alistair has arrived in the eye shield chamber. There's no wardress this time, though. No, this is slightly different and a bit interesting. It is interesting, but um, it is rather saturated, especially towards the end of the scene. Silence! I may not have the power to stop you watching, but I can certainly stop your muttering. Alistair is faced with a figure that looks worryingly like Morgana at first glance. When she speaks, it becomes clear that she's actually a different character. Malice, played by Samantha Perkins. I think Malice is the most interesting aspect of season four, and probably the best of the big bads, apart from Lord Fear. She's a very greedy and powerful villainess, but not as clearly defined evil as the other heavies. She can be trusted to keep a deal when she makes one, so she's a bit more unpredictable 
predictable. She's, there's kind of an element, an echo of Mildred in there. It's a little bit on the cheap side that she's given exactly the same costume as Morgana. And also Samantha Perkins' slight speech impediment that we discussed before. It arguably helps when she's playing Grandrada, but it does damage the effect of her dialogue a little here. But for all that, um, if, you, if you can get past that, Samantha Perkins actually does still play the part very well. And I would say there's less danger of irritation from her than there is with Gundrada. The way Perkins performs the role strongly reminds me of Pamela Hensley when she played Princess Ardala in Buck Rogers in the 25th century, mm. although obviously a lot less sexually charged. But the character is an interesting one because she can cooperate with the good guys. There does seem to be something where she does occasionally waver a bit to the left rather than being a firmly right-wing pseudo-fascist, so mm. to speak, unlike Mogdred. Come here, young person. Be careful of And I'll stuff. not harm In fact, we may be able to do each other a mutual favour. Wisely, your friend broke. Go forward. Shall I go forward? Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Walk, just forward. walk forward. What is your name? Alistair. And what is your quest, Alistair? For the shield. Oh, but excellent good fortune. If you had, for instance, said the quest for the sword, then I would have been constrained to destroy you. Nothing personal, you understand? Alistair's rightfully wary of malice, but she sees that he may be useful to her and offers him a transaction that she says will be mutually beneficial to the both of them. Well, there's a nice little tautology in there. She says it would be mutually beneficial to both of them. If it's not beneficial to both of them, then it wouldn't be mutually beneficial at all. It's like saying ATM machine. Getting away with it scot-free. They both mean the same thing, just say getting away with it. Deja vu all over again. There's a lot of them out there. She tells him that there is a green gem that she requires, but due to a misunderstanding with other factions... She's unable to retrieve it herself. Okay, but massive plug warning here. From the dialogue in this and the other scenes later in the series, it's very clearly implied that Malice and Mogdred are jostling for power over level three in a sort of background plot that was sadly never really developed in the series beyond the subtle hints. Mogdred appears to be in charge at this point. Malice uh, seems to be a former ally who has fallen out with him. She manages to overthrow Mogdred and take his place somewhere around the middle of the season but is then defeated by a dungeoneer and that allows Mogdred to take charge again. As I say, this wasn't really explored in any detail. It's just hints we're picking up on. But we made the audio play When Five Tribes Go to War, which you can find on this very website to explore this in a lot more detail to sort of set up the transition, the very big transitions that occurred in seasons four and five. Uh, I must stress that Five Tribes is not official canon, but it's the only coherent explanation of it you're ever likely to get. So go and listen to it. I am unable to retrieve it in person, but can collect once you have summoned me. She gives Alistair her calling name, Meris, and tells him to repeat it three times once he has collected the gem. To help him on his way, she offers him the eye shield. <laughs> Remember, Alistair, our pact. For one cannot The weak side of this scene is that uh, while the character, um, the non-player character, has changed, it's still very much a rerun from the first quest in terms of the plot purpose and function. And that closing line really should not have been put in there because it's a verbatim recycle of Hortus's corresponding line in the first quest. I may be wrong, but I get the feeling that, that scene actually was originally written with Hortus to be in it, and they decided to change the character just to vary things up a bit. Malice exits and Traeger explains the eye shield to the team. For some reason, they decide to take it, 
and then they guide Alistair onwards. The passive path then guides Alistair through the door. <gasps> Look, Stop. it sees, Master, it sees! Stop. Yes, Stop. it sees. Looks like it's not a dungeon here we need here, Master. A forester would be of more use. Alistair? Yes, I think yeah. you're right, Pickle. What now, we listen, team, listen. As you're aware, the Greater Dungeon has a nasty habit of changing shape. Well, now it seems to have developed a new whim, that of changing its location. I think the problem is it's just got too big for this castle, so now there are other ways in and out. The important thing here is to follow the elf path. They're always there. If you know where to look, Eisenwitz team. Eisenwitz is what we need. And Pickle acts all surprised that they're now suddenly wandering through Dunkley Wood, even though that's exactly what happened the last time. The passive path is exactly the same, so we can skip over that for now. Alistair eventually arrives in the clearing in the wood. There are three gnarled upright tree trunks with no branches, and from behind one of them emerges the rotund finger. The rotund finger? Behind one of them emerges the rotund figure of Brother Mace. Looks like a monk just appeared in front of you. Well met, well met indeed. Ah, and what a useful looking shield. Dominus I Panium did it, not a doubt about it. Although it's different, even this still feels like it's an amalgam of two scenes in the first quest. They've arrived in this clearing again, albeit the layout is slightly different. But also they've blundered into Brother Mace in a forest. Mace inquires as to what Alistair is questing for and gets the reply that he's questing for the shield. A noble quest indeed. Mace introduces himself as a tavern monk and asks if Alistair knows anything about elf paths. He explains that they cut out the boring bits of a journey, but not the dangerous bits. Now, if your friends have half an eye between them, they ought to be able to see where I'm coming from, <laughs> in a manner of speaking, <laughs> and where I'm going to, too. <laughs> Mace once again shows a remarkable capacity for laughing at his own jokes, even when they're not jokes. Mace exits using an elf path hidden behind the tree trunk on the left. This shows that all the running around tree stumps that Melisandre demonstrated in the <laughs> same clearing in episode one was totally unnecessary. Before Alistair can follow, there's a gigantic... Look out, Master! Phase shift approaching! Oh dear, so it is. Brace yourselves, you lot. There's a bit of temporal disruption on its way. Too late. I wonder if Alistair will ever see the wood for the trees. Uh, Master, they're still here. Oh, I know. And you know what the really funny thing is? They actually think we're the illusion. This is actually one of my more favourite sign-offs with Pickle and Traegard, though. There's something slightly metaphysical about the idea that we're the illusion, I suppose, but... Uh... I'm not sure they take very much. <laughs> I'm not sure it's that thought-provoking, really. It's harmless, I suppose. I mean, I, nothing will ever live up to bog off, let's be honest. What do we think of this episode? It's all right. Yeah, it, it manages to be exactly middle, because the first half is exceptionally strong by season four standards, I think. But the second half is awful. The first half of the episode, you get... Um, the opening team have got well into level three. They've explored some parts of the dungeon that don't get shown very often. 
and that death scene, whether you think it's fair or not, was very impactful. Um, really restores Mogdred's air of threat, provided you don't notice the dress. Sadly, the second half of the episode, it just turns into a really patience-testing retread of the first quest. There is no variety in new locations at all. You know, we're, what, four or five scenes into it, and every single one of them has just been taken from the corresponding moment in the first quest. It makes season one look more varied. It feels slightly lazy. Um, especially the way that uh, Malice just seems to be given a lot of Hordress's dialogue. So when Mace says we're cutting out the boring bits, I'm not sure that's true. In itself, it's not bad stuff. It's just it's stuff they've already done. Agreed. Honestly, there's not really much I can add, is there? No. Looking for plus sides in the second half of the episode, we can raise the introduction of Malice. The best of her is still to come later in the season, though. But it is the introduction of a genuinely more interesting and um, quite unpredictable villain character. We do have some more interesting stuff coming up in this quest, including the uh, introduction of a certain corridor. So there is good stuff to come. I do like quite a few elements of level three in season four, the big cavern with the bridge. I would love that to be in season three in place of, say, the cat chamber. Get rid of that and put the bridge scene into season three. Season three becomes perfection. It is jarring and possibly the biggest sudden slump in quality inside a single episode ever is here. No discernible transition, no gradual slide. It's just on a graph. It's... Uh... You just have to imagine what I'm gesturing there, listeners. Right, so anyway, you can follow us on Twitter, assuming it hasn't eaten itself by that stage. We're at Nightmare Pod. If you want to support the podcast, we're Nightmare Pod on Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, here's a shout out to Keepers of the Book of Quests, Peter Pulsford, David and Rabbit, Paul McIntosh and Scott Evans. Advisors, Benjamin Blooms, Peter Sidon and David Thompson. And Dungeoneer Peter Courage. Support us on Patreon at Dungeoneer level or above to get your name mentioned on the podcast. High level perks also receive merchandise, have access to exclusive episodes, and if you pledge as a keeper of the Book of Quests, we'll even offer you the chance to be a guest on the podcast. Our website is nightmarepod.co.uk. If you're looking for temporal discussion merchandise, including t-shirts, stickers, and other products, it's at nightmarepod.redbubble.com. You can email us at podcast at nightmarepod.co.uk. And just keep telling yourself, it's only a banana in a helmet.